Podcast. The Gospel according to Matthew was written by a former tax collector who was transformed by the power of Christ. Instead of keeping records for Rome, now he would keep records for God, carefully recording all that Jesus said and did. Matthew references more than 60 Old Testament prophecies, proving Jesus is indeed the promised Messiah. Jesus really is who he claimed to be, our Savior and soon returning King. Now let's join Pastor Ross with our verse-by-verse study through the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 19, that's where we're picking up. Uh, We are back in the story of the rich young ruler. There was a paragraph that was left off there uh, so that we could devote uh, our full time to it this week. A fascinating paragraph, intriguing and just full of wonder and inspiration. And so we look forward to what the Lord has for us. Let's go to him, a word of prayer. Father God, now... As we look to your word, we acknowledge, God, that didn't come from earth or from the pen of any man, but holy men of old moved along by the Holy Spirit. They spoke and wrote as the Spirit of God gave them utterance. And so we recognize, God, that what we have in our lap and in our heart and on the screen is the God-breathed word sent to save us to help us along the straight and narrow path that leads to life. Few there be that find it. Thank you for sparing us from the wider road that leads to destruction that many sadly will take, but there but the grace of God go. All of us, God, that your kindness appeared and led us to repentance and you saw us before the world was and you you lavished your love upon us and we're so thankful to know you and be known by you so we pray that this would be a fruitful time with ears that can hear and eyes that can see and a heart that understands in jesus name amen well it's that lovable disciple peter again that gets us started with his impulsive nature. He's full of zeal, isn't he? Maybe that's why we love him so much. He's always the first to speak, and he's usually speaking for the whole group, whether or not they wanted him to. He loves to jump into things, doesn't he, right? And usually when you jump into a pool, you look first to make sure there's water, but Peter's the kind of guy who likes to jump first and then look later. So we've seen that along the way. Here in chapter 19, once again, he's quick with his mouth and showing great chutzpah, for sure, in the incident with what we call uh, the rich young ruler. And he's blurting out a question. Maybe the others might have been thinking in light of what Jesus has said, but nobody's willing to vocalize it (laughs) except Peter. 
And so let's refresh our memories, and we'll walk through it really quick just to give context so we can uh, really understand fully the question that Peter is asking. And it begins uh, with a man, you'll recall, asking Jesus how to get to heaven. Verse 16, we'll just walk through it, refreshing our memories. Now a man, a rich young ruler, comes up to Jesus, falls on his knees. Good teacher, what good thing must I do to add eternal life to my already impressive portfolio? <laughs> Sorry. That was the extended paraphrase, okay? He wants to earn it. He wants to make it happen by something good. Why do you call me good and ask me about what you got to do that's good? Jesus says there's only one who is good, God alone. So that should have answered his question. The answer is you can do nothing good since you're bad because there's only one who's good. So if there's only one who's good, like I said last week, then everyone else is not good. Good. And so that could have answered his question, and Jesus would have given him the standard answer when he said, how can a bad person then inherit eternal life? That's the question he should have asked. There's this pause, and nothing's happening, right? Jesus would have said, well, yeah, a bad person can do nothing but trust in the one God has sent, the only good one who will do the good work on your behalf. Well, after the pause, and he's like, do you get it? No, and so Jesus has to go on further to help unravel the guy's self-righteousness. And he says, if you want to enter life, okay, let's pull out the, the big elephant gun that commands, which ones do I have to obey? And the Lord, you know, the Lord could have said all of 613. But he says, hey, how about do not murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't lie, uh, honor your father and mother and love your neighbor as yourself. We went through all of this with such detail last time. All these, and when it's all these at the front of the sentence, it's emphasizing done perfectly. Got it. All of these I've kept not just for a week or two, but since I was a boy for many years, every day, 24-7, check, 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 check. What else? Do you got for me, Jesus? And so, yeah, this is bad because Jesus wants to break him of his self-righteousness, you know? And so, yeah, five challenging commands and an extra one, a bonus one, and he's like, yeah, I got this, you know, what else is missing? And so Jesus, last-ditch effort, it breaks his heart. He's like, oh, this guy's not going to make it. Let me try going for the jugular, and you'll recall 21. Jesus looked at him, felt sorry for him. I was passionate, like, come on, man. <laughs> Pulls out the paddle, boom. Uh, you know, if you gotta be you gotta be perfect, go and sell your possessions, give to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven. I emphasize that because somebody in the crowd, he's not paying attention, but somebody's listening. And when Jesus said there's treasure in heaven waiting for those who have left their stuff behind, their lives, someone's listening and I'll give you a hint. It's Peter, right? So, man, come follow me. When the young man hears this, he goes away sad. His face falls and because he had great wealth. And so, yeah, really sad. Jesus is not giving a prescription on how to be saved, but uh, really shooting down uh, his self-righteousness so that he'll say, oh, my word, I can never be saved because I can't part because I'm coveting. I love stuff more than even you and more than God and more than my own soul. 
what must I do to be saved? Lord, go away from me. I'm an evil, sinful man. Woe is me. I dwell in a, you know, Isaiah. Everyone seems to get, wow, how helpless and hopeless and sinful we are. That's the starting point where God's grace can come in. We trust him, and that could have happened for him, and he could have left with his stuff, trusting in Christ because the Holy Spirit would have then led him in the new life, how to manage uh, wealth and our assets now uh, as a follower of Christ. But that doesn't happen. As you'll recall, he walks away. Jesus shakes his head and comments, it's super hard for successful people to get saved because they don't sense their awareness. They don't have an awareness of how desperate their need. And until you humble yourself, and mourn and, and realize your hopeless estate. See past all of the ways that we like to justify ourselves and thinking we got this. You know, that's what gets in the way. And so the rich young ruler may be not listening, but Peter, he's interested in what he just heard. And when, when Jesus says there'll be treasure in heaven waiting for anyone who's left it all behind kind of thing, Peter's eyes get wide and so to his mouth, right? And so now continuing on, we're covering new territory now, and this is the gist of our time together. Now, starting in verse 27, Peter answered him, we, <laughs> unlike him, we did what you told him to do and promised him treasures in heaven. We have left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, verily, verily, amen and amen, I tell you the truth. At the renewal of all things, beautiful way to talk about the second coming. The Son of Man, his favorite way to describe himself 88 times in the New Testament from Daniel chapter 7. When Daniel's looking up, God gives him a vision of the second coming. And he says, what? This glorious being, but he looks like one of us. He looks like someone who was born, uh, like a human being, a son of man. And Jesus loves that because it's the essence of the incarnation. And he calls himself the son of man there. When I sit on my glorious throne, you, have, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. This new millennial kingdom, starting with Israel and their specific duties, will be to administrate there. And everyone who has left houses or brothers, sisters, father, mother, children, any kind of loss for my sake and the gospel's sake will receive a hundred times. That's 10,000% increase. As much in this present age, and yeah, not to mention a lot of persecution as well, and will inherit eternal life on top of that where no eye has seen and no ear has heard, nor has it entered into the mind of man the glorious things God has prepared for those who love him on top of the reward. Wow, it's amazing. But he says many who are first will be last, and many on that day who are last now will be prominent front and center 
boom. And so Jesus will use that last line there about the first and the last, and the last will be first in several different uh, nuances. And this one, of course, will be about the reversal of fortunes. Things are not always as they appear. And you'll find that out. There are some people who pretend to be rich, but they're poor toward God. And those who pretend to be, as the Proverbs say, pretend to be poor, but are rich toward God. And when he appears, then we see reality. The first shall be last, and the last shall be first. But I am ahead of myself a little bit. And so let's get situated here. What's going on? It's a major theme in the Bible. Our choices, our devotion, our sacrifices, our losses and crosses, they're accruing a weight of glory. There's a spreadsheet. And the time that you come to life, the Holy Spirit comes in and raises you to new life. The, the, the spreadsheets are out, as it were. The clock doesn't start ticking until you're alive before you were dead in your sins. But now the stewardship, observation of your life, so that on that great day and in this life as well, that there will be recompense and reward. And this is a major theme in the Bible. Jesus has already brought it up several times. Hey, don't be so sad when men mock you and persecute you. Rejoice, be happy, because guess what? In heaven, man, great will be your reward. And then in another place, they'll say, a cup of cold water. It's not going to be hard, folks. You know, Don't compare yourself to Billy Graham you know, or John the Baptist. A cup of cold water, cha-ching, it's adding up. God is keeping track because he's the father who wants to see you go, what? Remember Christmas, Dad and Mom? just like going crazy with the presents under the tree or birthdays and, and, and that amazing feeling of when the kid goes, oh, it's way more uh, glorious in our own hearts as parents. And so it's in his heart too. He wants to bless us. So he lowers the bar and says, a cup of cold water in my name like a compliment, an encouraging word, a refreshing thing you do. He's keeping track of it. So that there's a, a mound for the least gifted among us. Because who can't give a cup of cold water in his name? So he's going to make it all quite equitable. And, and so we're going to dive in here now. The main uh, point of this passage is the losses and crosses that we voluntarily lay down or are forcefully laid upon us in this life will be fully recompensed to us, whether it's in this life for sure and in the life to come. And so uh, let's dive in. We begin with Peter's blunt, blunt question once again, bringing up future reward, which the Bible's not uh, shy about talking about. So Peter responds. In the Greek, there's a behold, or it's low, or you know, the NIV leaves it out. I like the King James uh, having it in there. Behold. He's like, wow, we have done what you told him to do, and what you told him to do will, will bring riches in heaven, So, but we've done what you told him to do. And so that would mean, in my thinking, that there's riches in heaven for us. So please, what's in it for us? We've done it. You know, We want to know. The short answer to what's in it for us is this. A lot. A lot. 
exceedingly, abundantly more than you can ask or think. So go to the highest imaginative place in your mind, and then there's millions and millions and millions of uncharted territory of God's grandeur and glory awaiting. You just can't know about it. And so there's a lot waiting for us. Surely the question is a little blunt. Maybe we call it uncouth or a tad presumptuous. You know, he begins with a statement affirming himself. Look what we've done. And then he asks a question, what's the reward? What will I get out of it? What's in it for us? And so sure, maybe slightly more mercenary, meaning, you know, I'm doing this to get, uh, than altruistic, which is more unselfish motives. I'm doing it because it's the right thing to do and I want to do it from my heart. Uh, uh, Maybe uh, that's the way it is. Um, And, you know, for example, when Jesus says give, and it will be given to you. Your gift will return to you in full, pressed down, shaken together to make room for more, running over, poured into your lap. The amount you give will determine the amount given to you. Well, do you see how you could take that and go, well, I'm writing a check right now because I want to get, right? But everybody knows in our hearts, no, we give out of love and sincere desire to bless the Lord, to help other people. But Jesus knows how hard it is, and he just likes to throw in them. By the way, God is keeping track of stuff like that. Thank you very much, and I will be a debtor to no man. You cannot outgive me. I just want you to know. You're giving, and you're like, oh, I don't know. And the Lord's like, oh, I'm going to bless your socks out for that, right? And so, yeah. Now, if he crossed the line, Jesus would have just rebuked him and not answered him. Right, get thee behind me. I mean, he 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 shuts Peter down when the question or the remark isn't right. But right now, Jesus is like, you know what? I I get it. I'm going to answer you. It would have been nice maybe if he would have phrased it more delicately, like you know, by your grace, God, Lord, we've enabled we've been enabled to leave our lives behind and put your business before our own, our families behind your. Uh, family and so so encouraging to hear about reward. Please tell us a little bit more. <laughs> no, yeah, and and I think that's probably what he meant. Uh, but it is pre-cross, pre-Pentecost. Uh, he's got a long ways to go, right? And and aren't you glad that God hears us uh, and He's not really a stickler? He's gracious and kind, and that we have the Holy Spirit, Romans 8, that says he translates for us. He's our translator at the throne. What she really meant, Lord, was, <laughs> you know, and that's the only reason I think that God responds, because he gets the heart of it, and he's not a stickler for the perfect prayer with the perfect motivations, or we'd all be cooked, right? And so, okay, so let's dive in with some sound theology about the issue of giving up everything for Christ. I think we better understand what's happening here. Yeah, these guys have given up everything, but because they've been given everything first by faith. They have already obtained eternal life and all of the blessings by faith freely, grace plus nothing. Now they let it all go. See, they're not letting it all go to obtain. They've obtained freely by faith and now hands off the reins of my life because I've been bought and paid for by Christ. 
He owns me. I'm not my own. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Paul says to the sexually immoral Corinthians, what are you guys doing with your bodies that don't even belong to you? If you're a Christian, God owns you. He bought you. Not only did he create you, then he redeemed you by his own blood, and now you don't even belong to yourself. How dare you take what doesn't belong to you and do what isn't right in the owner's eyes? And so, of course, Christians understand that, of course, we leave it all behind because of God's love and who he is and what he's done in our hearts and lives that we say with Paul the Apostle, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. Everything. He says, whatever to us it was in my gain or my worldly agenda, my hopes and my dreams and my education and all of this stuff that everybody loves. And by the way, God is not up to trying to take away the things that make life enjoyable. That's not the point of the passage. The point of the passage is when Christ comes in, we become his, and everything about our lives is yielded to him should he require it. He doesn't always require everything from everybody. Peter keeps his house. Whose boat are they using? Somebody's got to, who's staying in their careers and working and supporting and bringing offerings from which they uh, find their sustenance there, Jesus and the 12. So, of course, he doesn't always. The idea is this, the willingness. He doesn't demand, well, everybody is supposed to, to lose everything and give everything away and hate all, everything that brings enjoyment to life. No, but if something gets in the way, even a relationship, a mom and a dad, he says, if you love mom and dad more than me, you're not worthy of me. You can't have anybody. I'm the God who spoke and the universe leapt into existence. I'm the God who gives you the breath in your lungs. How can you say, well, let me first go and spend some time in the village and wait till my father dies, and then, God, I'll come and do what you are asking me to do. Jesus says, oh, no, it doesn't work that way. Uh, I'm the creator. You're the created thing, right? And so when I come into your life, you know, it's just expected. And we are not arguing with that. We get that. I mean, it wasn't one of your first thoughts like, whew, that was close. I almost went to hell, and I deserve to go to hell. Now I'm going to heaven. God, what can I do for you? What do you want? Take whatever you want, my time, my, my, my life, where I was headed. You know, I, I belong to you now, right? Sometimes it's easy in the heat of the moment and not so easy. So the attitude is the most important relationship is God. And as Paul said, and, and, and this is the Bible, I count it all as dung, whatever it is. And he doesn't even see it as a loss so much. He's like, I'm doing this for God because I feel God's asking me to do it. Not everybody's going to be John the Baptist or the Apostle Paul or Billy Graham and all. There's so many people that have been called to do extreme things. Don't compare yourself to others. That's foolish. 
You've been given a race. You have to be faithful to the, to the calling that God has put on your individual life. In fact, the, Paul the Apostle in 1 Corinthians 7 says, each person, when they're called, should remain in the station of life that God has called you in and be faithful in that station. So, for example, for, for most of us, when God comes calling and catches us, uh, you wouldn't be able to tell that there's this big extreme change in most Christians' lives. Let's pick on a physician, okay? There's probably four or five of you here that I know of. A physician gets saved. Usually, he goes on with his practice. Now, there, he doesn't have to move and doesn't have to do anything except you, you would definitely expect that there'd be a, a, probably a change in the way he treats his patients, the way he conducts his staff, uh, the way he spends his money. You might expect that, and that's between him and God, right? Now, there are other physicians who get saved, and they make lucrative, uh, they have a lucrative practice, and God puts it on their heart, on their heart. They want to do it, and God calls them to medical missions where he has to go out and raise support to support him and his family so that he can do his work in Botswana, in Zimbabwe, wherever, right? But not everybody's called to do that, and God is not going to judge you for something he didn't call you to do or to give up. I mean, it's nice for us to be thinking, hey, I'd like to start doing something around here. We'll start serving in the church. Start little, you know, start giving little things up. You know, somebody was talking to me about, you know what I gave up that I loved? Sports on Sunday. My kids, they were so gifted and they loved this. And it was like, kids, we don't do that. We're Christians. On Sunday, I want you to remember all your life what mattered most, more important than soccer, is that you're on, in the house of the Lord worshiping him on Sunday morning. And if they move it to Sunday, I'm sorry. It's on Saturday. That's good. Sunday at 3. We're good. Chick-fil-A. It's like, you know what? I can make a lot of money on Sundays. But you know what? It's the Lord's day. And so we're going to close up. Do you know how wealthy that whole uh, company is? It's just amazing. And as this little child from the mouth of babes <laughs> affirms that whole thing. It, it's just amazing. It's amazing. And God is just saying, listen, God comes in. It's loose hands on everything. As Paul the Apostle said, those who buy stuff, he says, make sure that it's like it's not yours to keep. That's how you should have it, like it's temporary. Those who use the things of this world as if not engrossed in them. For this world in its present form is passing away, but whoever does the will of God, that's eternal. So Jesus says, yeah, you might want to think about, have a, a heavenly perspective about the way you're investing your life. Loose grip on people and stuff. Aim at heavenly reward. And so, yeah, I do want to say one more thing. And uh, Romans 12 says, listen, in view of what I've just said in chapters mostly one through eight, that you can start condemned and headed south forever in unending death. 
and be raised to new life to a place of Romans 8 where nothing can, and all of creation can separate you from that beautiful thing that God has done in your heart and life. He says, in view of all of the mercies, it's reasonable to worship God by laying your life down completely for the one who gave it all for you. Now, why would Jesus say, I laid down everything out of love willingly. Nobody took my life. I laid it all out for you. Why would we say, well, I want a little bit of this for me. It's like, of course not. We have died. And the life we now live, as Paul said, I've been crucified with Christ as we all have been. Colossians chapter 3, verse 1. Don't you guys realize you have died? You've died. If you're in Christ, you, you're dead to your own life. He raised you to a new life that belongs to him and needs to do his will. I've been crucified with Christ. He says, it's no longer me who lives, but Christ who lives in me. The life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loves me and gave himself for me, God, on a cross, on a piece of wood he created, bleeding and dying for for me come on everything i have everything i am everything i hope to be if i could do a little something for you or a big something just let us know and whether that comes voluntarily or if it's ripped out of your home God. So many stories. I don't know which to pr to present to you, but I'm just thinking in India, meeting this family, and the guys sharing, the pastors sharing how Hindu militants came into their home and ransacked the place and broke the leg of his wife. Th these are things that are going on, and, and Jesus says, "I'm paying attention, people. I'm paying attention." And there's a reversal of fortune coming. And if the person who broke the pastor's wife's leg doesn't repent, sad story for him. Let's go on now to the renewal. He says, truly, truly, I say, I assure you with all certainty, I swear by myself, really, you know, as the Lord often does, he takes oaths by himself. It's like there's nobody else to, greater to swear by, so he swears by himself. And he says, you know, I promise you this unchangeable truth. When I come and make everything new, and that's what he's going to do, take my seat on my glorious throne, you, 12, will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So here's some uh, mind boggling response note takers if you want to leave Peter's chutzpah that's where we're going now so reversal of fortunes are coming it's one of my favorite ways to speak of the second coming is the renewal of all things you do realize he comes out of the, at the second coming uh, at, at the culmination of Armageddon where the world has seen uh, 21 judgments from heaven 7 seals seven trumpets. In the middle of the seven trumpets, it, the angels are going, whoa, whoa, whoa. There's, there's three more trumpets, let alone seven bowls that, that tilt the earth on its axis that make the sun, moon, and stars not shine right. They're out of order. There's no life in the oceans. Mountains have been leveled and islands have disappeared. 
and he appears. He sits on the throne, first order of business, reverse the curse, renew this earth. And all over the Bible, it talks about this river of life that flows from the throne there in Jerusalem, the capital of the millennial kingdom. And wherever the waters flow, everything like this gorgeous movie going from dead and charred earth and the Dead Sea, it flows into the Dead Sea, and fish and uh, all kinds of flowers. And I was trying to think of the fauna and flora. Is that, am I making stuff up? <laughs> you, know, you know what I mean. It just becomes beautiful. It's like any, it's, it's more beautiful than any Disney movie that you've ever seen where that kind of theme, and by the way, you see that in literature a lot, and because it's in our hearts, it's, it's encoded in the human psyche, these kinds of things that are coming in God's reality. And so, yes, he says, I'm coming, I'm sitting on the throne, and what does Jesus say in Revelation 21? From the throne, behold, I'm making everything New. He's restoring the planet. And the planet will look like the Garden of Eden and better. You see, he's reversing the curse. You remember in Romans chapter 8, right? Romans chapter 8 says, when sin came into the world, the world was subjected to the curse of futility and um, under the bondage to decay. So there are tornadoes. Everything's out of order. There's hurricanes and sinkholes and tsunamis and pestilence and disease and thorns and thistles. Every terrible thing you can trace back to the fall. But he says, but when the children of God are made manifest at the renewal, so too the creation liberated from its bondage to decay. And wait till you see this place, he says. It's going to be, well, Jesus calls it paradise. That's Jesus' word for paradise there, for heaven. And so 2,000 references in the Old Testament. There's really 1,845 references. Dr. Charles Sweeting from Moody Bible Institute 2,000 references to the second coming, 315 for the first coming, and 2,000 for the second. And he says, it's going to happen. The zeal of the Lord will accomplish this. And so the greatness of his kingdom shall be no, uh, no end of that peace. And so the wonderful counselor, the almighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace will take his rightful seat on his glorious throne and start writing. You want to talk about executive orders? Oh, my word. They're going to be coming off, flying left and right. And the first one has to do with the renewal of the earth. And the second one will be these guys who have been uh, the pounded into the dirt and oppressed and weak and martyred. They're the kings and the queens of the new world. We're a royal priesthood. Now, this requires a little bit of faith. This is who God says we are, and he knows us to be these people. These are who uh, we are destined to become, the rulers and the authorities who reign and rule with him in a thousand-year kingdom that he comes to set up right there what he's talking about. That's what he does. It's called the millennial kingdom for a thousand years. Revelation chapter 20 tells us that. Now, the Jews... The Jewish people have a bit of a conversion 
at Armageddon, they're like, oy vey. We need to turn to, like, it's a nice time to turn to Yeshua, you know? And they look up, and, and by and large, the nation, not every single Hebrew, but by and large, they look up, Romans chapter 11, verse 25, they cry out at Jesus like, oh, finally. <laughs> it kind of took Armageddon to do it, but better late than never. And so those who are saved and survive will make up the starter nation of this Israel here. These are the biblical boundaries of our Israel. Just so you know, when everybody's crying out, oh, they have too much land. They need to give more and more away. And they do, silly people. Come on. This is what's going to happen. And an executive order right away, extend the borders. Boom. There it is. And guess who's going to help Jesus administrate over those Jewish believers who will have renewed bodies and they'll be able to live the thousand years. Like every survivor, Jew and Gentile, of tribulation period, we, the future kings and queens, will reign on thrones with the Lord and administrate over the kingdom. But the, but the apostles get Israel. And what that looks like, it's hard to say. There's no, we know there's no war. We know the lions are laying down with the lambs and there's no lamb chop there. You know, it's a real lamb. And, and so we just know things will be changed and beautiful and wonderful and a world that exists that needs administrating. And we are the ones who reign with him. That's what he's saying. Paul tells the Corinthians who are, are suing each other in court over, you know, you took my shovel you know what? I didn't take your shovel. You know, you know what? I'm going to sue you. And so they're suing each other. And Paul, Paul says, are you crazy? Do you not realize you're going to judge the world? Well, Jesus told the church in chapter 3 of Revelation, when you overcome and all, all, all born-again people overcome, 1 John 5, for those who overcome, I will grant the right to sit with me in the new kingdom on my throne. Now, that doesn't mean he's like sitting in a tractor and say, come on up here, give it, you know, sit here. No, no, he's going to give us delegated honors and authorities commensurate with your faithfulness. You will reign and rule with him somewhere on this planet. You're involved in the administration, and that's what he's talking about here to the 12. They've got the Jewish territory. And so it'll be really interesting to see those who martyred them and, and flogged Peter at the Sanhedrin. They had all the power. They sat in their big throne chairs at the Sanhedrin and said, we told you not to speak in that name. You will be flogged. They, should they have not repented, will now stand before them and they will pass judgment on those who pass judgment on them in life, the first, last, the last first. One writer said, it would seem that believers in glory will be given authority to judge, especially in matters that involve their own injustices, like martyrs, millions of them, now on thrones, and those who did not repent, who put them to death, will stand before them. Now, first, last, Last shall be first. That's what it seems to be. Somebody brought up the other truth uh, and put it in Stephen's mouth. Now, Stephen, in Acts chapter 7, he's preaching the gospel. He gets 
crushed to death by people who don't want to hear the gospel. So let's just kill him. So they kill him. Now, one writer suggested he's on a throne and those who killed him will stand before him in the great reversal and hear Stephen say, all right, let's talk about that day. Quite possible. It's no chapter and verse. I'm just saying the spirit of what Jesus is saying is that those who have been oppressed and marginalized their possessions, they lost their time, they lost their dream, they lost all kinds of things. It'll, it'll be flipped over on its head. Those who are weak in this life will be the powerful. And the powerful in this life who are not rich toward God will be spiritually bankrupt. Right? And so let's finish up now with the recompense of our losses. Finally, we finish up with this and everyone who's left houses, you've lost your home, whether you know God called you away from your home as he did does many missionaries and traveling speakers and things where you could be home this weekend with your kids and instead you feel like I want to please God and equip the church and so there's a little bit of a loss there but it's a voluntary loss and others you know it's forced <laughs> you're taken out of your home or you're arrested but here's what he's saying a nice comforting promise he says crosses and losses for his sake uh, will be recompensed and so Jesus knows that we will have to sacrifice things, our time and our lives. And he says, listen, I'm keeping track. Um, I like to remind you of the One for Israel uh, website where you hear all these Jewish testimonies of how they became Christians. And nine times out of ten, they the big thing is, I'm saved, I found Yeshua, now i got to tell my family. And it's huge. And every time they do it, the parents uh, excommunicate them. You're out of the company. You're out of the will. Never talk to us again. And all of this. And yes, somebody here, amen, Wendy Masinskis is a full-on uh, Jewish believer who has experienced that very thing. In my case, my father used to joke and say, if only they know what I did now, because they wrote him off earlier, his parents, for other bad behavior, right? But then he became a Christian on top of all the other stuff. And he said, if they only knew what I've gone and done now, I've accepted Jesus, a nice Jewish boy from Brooklyn. You know, go figure. And so, yeah, what about those in communist countries? What are you living a nice Muslim life over there in Iraq? And Jesus lights up your soul. There's some losses and crosses. I had a Jewish uh, guy in our uh, church. He comes up to me. He's 20 years old. He says, man, you know what? I brought my Tanakh, the Jewish Bible. And, and word for word, everything you're saying is word for word in my Tanakh. And I'm like, yeah, we have the same Bible, right? And he's like, well, long story short, he gets saved, really saved. And he goes, hey, I'm so saved. I love Jesus, but I'm going to have to be a secret believer. And I said, bro, I've got some news for you. There's no such thing. 
And he goes, oh, I could never tell my parents. Never, never, never. Oh, you would never believe what that would do. It would send ripples through the Oh, yeah, yeah. And so he had to do it. He had to do it. You have to do it. There's all kinds of costs. Our friend Yukako, Yukako from Japan. Uh, we were in Japan for four years. Barb led her to the Lord at the kitchen table. She was in my English Bible class at the Tandai at the college. She came over here. She married a, a Christian man because she became a Christian. But when she told dad, she's no longer going to be a cultural Buddhist. They didn't even believe. They were just culturally Buddhist. He picked up the living room table over his head and threw it across the room and then began to destroy the entire house in a rage. And I remember talking to her about, too bad about your dad. I'm so sorry about that. You took a stand for Jesus and, oh, kind of lost your dad. I found a hundred dads in the church now. That's what I remember. Yeah. So that's the idea is he's saying, really, don't press these things, please. Don't say, you know, I lost my house. Where's the hundred houses? <laughs> he's, he's saying, whatever you lose in this life compared to what God has for you and the blessings of being saved are, are not countable. They're not countable. You, it's like Paul's idea that when you get to heaven, he's saying our light and momentary struggles and tribulations and trials are accruing for us an eternal weight of glory that's not worth comparing. When you get there and go, what? And you fully realize what you are now, co-heirs with Christ. Co-heirs. Co-heirs with the Son of God. That should make every little loss and cross a, a, hundred, a hundredfold more than that. And so what, the, there is an idea there, though, like when the fire swept through and, what, 38 of our families lost their homes, burned to the ground, boom. There were literally almost arguments over who was going to help who. It's like, oh, no, we asked them to live with us in our house. <laughs> You know, and no, we're buying groceries for them this week, okay? So you guys back off, all right? Uh, that's the idea. What you lose individually and privately is usually counterbalanced with the full expression, the various expression and richness of the kingdom of God and the church worldwide, you see. You may be lost at home. But you didn't know you had a hundred homes, right? And so God is just good to us. He's so good to us. I know that um, I'm a dentist who was working on me, causing me a lot of pain. And, and so he was talking to me, and he said, yeah, we went to uh, Italy. We do this bargain thing, and we really, we, we just do it with a song and a dance. It's really nice. And so he got back and he said, well, listen, let me tell you something, Pastor. He goes, um, I, I was walking out of the hotel and a young guy, good looking, dressed to the nines, just beautiful clothes and expensive jewelry and this car to die for. An Italian car, sports car, he named it. It was like a Maserati, you know, something <laughs> like that. <laughs> I said it the same way last time. <laughs> it's like a, anyway. It's a convertible. And he said, I could so do that. 
I could do that. And my heart was like, you can do that. You can live like that. You got the means. And he said, but I struggle. And I say, I want to invest long-term by faith. And I can't do that and live my Christian life. And he says, I just sense a peace and the blessing of God a hundredfold over going after what the world and what my worldly heart and passion sometimes wants to do. In wrapping up, listen, Hudson Taylor's the one, I think, who said he was a British missionary to China when? In the 1800s. You got to know loss and crosses there, okay? 1800s, they go to inland China, come on. And he's the one who said, I've never succeeded in making a sacrifice for God because every time I give up anything for God, I find myself so much more blessed and better off. You see, so in comparison, uh, no, honestly, I start thinking, you know, he's going to reward us for not destroying our lives <laughs> the way we wanted to, for, for, for getting off of the road to hell. And, and yeah, he's going to say, congratulations, guys, and, and throw in all of this on top of eternal life. Listen, is there anything that you wouldn't do for him? When you think about the cross, oh my word, God in a body, God, the spirit, went into Mary's womb and, and out comes the, a God-man, the one who's credited with making the universe. And then that God, the only God, he lays down his life for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. There's no joy in this. Despising the shame, what was the joy? Seeing you there. Enjoying all your rewards. <laughs> That's why our rewards get cast at his feet. Because by his grace, this is the only true sacrifice. Nobody sacrificed anything. <laughs> In light of that sacrifice, right? All we did was let him save us from what we richly deserved, and it wasn't good, amen? That's why we say to him, be all the glory and honor and praise, both now and forevermore, amen? Let's pray together. Oh, Father God, you're so good to us. You're just so good, God. That's why we need eternity, just to continue to work it out in our own minds, the grace, the unfathomable riches of your mercy. You're so good, God. Whatever we can do in our broken lives, in our limited way we love you, whatever, we're trying, God. We don't do a very good job of it, but we do love you, and we want to live for you. So lead us, God, in ways we might be found faithful, doing the things that you've called us to do. Nothing more, nothing less. Just following your lead, God, and being faithful stewards. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to The Rocks Podcast. Our regular services are held on Sunday mornings at 8, 9.30, and 11.30 a.m. in Santa Rosa, California. If you'd like to learn more, please visit our website at cctherock.org. 